0: This is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, Strong and Powerful Matthew Icke. Matt, Matthew, are you ready to do this? I'm ready. All right, let's go. Matt is the Executive Vice President with U.S. Energy Development Corporation. They're a leading oil and gas investment company that in, that they've invested in over 2,400 wells. In the United States and Canada and have deployed over $1.5 billion on behalf of their partners. I bet those numbers are probably uh, larger than that at this point, Matt. But, uh, yeah. We uh, yeah. get the idea. Excited to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work and why you do what you do. Ooh. Uh,
1: so outside of uh, ego and hubris, you mean? But well, I do, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Whatever. It's always family, right? So I think what drives and motivates us all is I have a, a wife and three beautiful children uh, and trying to build a legacy for them and future generations is just, it's just part and parcel of the, our DNA. So that's my, my primary foundation. What we do is, I think we're a pretty unique energy company in the sense that we marry investment philosophies to the energy space, and we try to find the best risk-adjusted arbitrages and the best tax mitigation uh, tools. So uh, we're constantly scanning and combing through the tax code to find nuances to create Uh, you know, return arbitrages, and then we're constantly operating and managing assets in the energy space uh, that we believe will will create the best, you know, kind of risk adjusted profile and marrying the two things together and and designing investments and uh, uh, bringing them to market. So that's our our passion. It's really largely a financial planning firm that uses energy as its medium uh, versus, you know, thinking of it as an energy company uh, it's more of a finance company that, that loves the energy space.
0: That's an interesting way to think about it for sure. Yeah. How long have you been sort of looking at it in that way, or have, 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 have you always?
1: So, I guess I, I've always looked at it that way.
0: Um,
1: I've been in the business for, for about 17, 18 years. So, quite some time I've been in finance before that on, on Wall Street. And when uh, our companies is a family second generation family company. And when my father-in-law and mother-in-law were the uh, founders, I guess we'd say we were a larger um, energy company, but they were, their, their background was in education and finance. And so it was just a natural marriage, right? Just to, to his history, my father-in-law, and then to where we are now. And, and my partner, my, our CEO, my brother-in-law, he, um, he also comes from wall street background. So it just made a ton of sense to us to move in that direction. Uh, as we transition from a generation one to a generation two company.
0: That's not the easiest thing to do. No.
1: Uh, you know, no one wants to be the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves, right? And in one generation, nobody wants to be the, the one that takes something that's grown and, and, and destroy it or, or shrink it. So uh, it's been really an amazing um, opportunity for us. And it's really been amazing to, to grow and thrive especially since people probably don't recognize it today. But the energy industry has been quite volatile over the last seven, 10 years. It's not been an easy place to be into uh, th- to not just survive, but to thrive during that time, I think is a pretty special opportunity we're given.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt. And here we find ourselves um, in, I don't know if this is a, certainly a, I don't even know if it's a unique time. Are, are we in a unique and unprecedented time when it comes to energy? Uh yeah I think we yes we
1: are uh, and I don't know where it starts and where it stops but I think the the all the different forces that are out there from from climate change to the geopolitical forces that we're facing to the ESG movement to you name it I, I think we're in a very interesting time uh, in, in shaping a lot of things going forward. So yeah, I, I, it's quite unique to say the least, to be in the energy space right now. Yeah, And, I, and often it's, it's an interesting thing because it's, it's often villainized, right? One side or the other is, is it has to be a, a good or bad. There's no just energy is a, I mean, when we really look backwards, energy is the reason we live like we live, right? It's the reason that everything's worked. And that we have the society we have today is we've had abundant energy. It's been the primary source of the US, the global change in, you know, our lifestyles, our health, everything that we have has really come from the last 150 years of, of easy and accessible energy. So we should think of it as this unbelievable, great beacon of good. And yet it's turned into weapons of war. It's turned into
0: the worst evils ever.
1: It, it's really interesting how polarized it's become.
0: Yeah, it is, and probably not all that surprising because that's sort of what we like to do is 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 really draw <laughs> lines in the sand and say I'm going to be over here, y'all are over there. Uh-huh. And,
1: you're not with me, you're against me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. And we're not going to have a a, a thoughtful conversation about it. But that's that's sort of that's the reality is that low cost energy has brought so many people out of poverty. Certainly, it's it's led to wonderful success here in the United States, but it's helped so many people all over the world to, uh, to extend life expectancy and live much better lives.
1: Yeah. And in fact, it's, it's funny when you contrast even within the letters of like E, S, and G, right? So just take the social responsibility to the environmental and, and, the, and the inherent conflict in the energy space between those two things, right? The socially responsible thing is to allow the rest of the world that is not industrialized, that doesn't have cheap energy, to really allow itself to benefit from what we benefit from, right? To have the ability to have the lifestyles that we have, to, to have cheap energy, to, well, uh, that directly conflicts with the, the, you know, sustainable part of E, right? Those two things are in a direct contrast from each other and which is more important and powerful, right? The conditions of which humans live or X or Y. And, and it's an interesting, and I think finally becoming more of a thoughtful discussion instead of just a draw a line in the sand, choose one, and let's all hate each other, Mm -hmm. right? I I think that, and we can look back on a lot of it. Like, I think we look back on the 70s and say, you know, maybe our fight against nuclear was ill-conceived, well-intended, but ill-conceived, right? Maybe we should have been focusing on the improvements in technology to make nuclear safer because it is renewable, right, and unlimited, and the single greatest source of power. And if we're gonna have an electric grid, you have only two real choices, because you don't want it to be coal, it's natural gas, or it's nuclear. The rest can't do enough. So yes, you need solar and wind combined, but the only way to get enough for all of us to get what we need is to, to go back to nuclear. So I do think it's interesting what time you're in, and what period, and what you think is right, versus what ends up being
0: you know, more responsible in the long run. Mm. Yes, that is, uh, that is 100% one of the most interesting things and something else that we're grappling with as a, as a, as a human race, as a society right now. So in terms of the folks like you that are actually pulling this stuff out of the ground, um, Mm -hmm. I believe that the majority, the vast majority of companies that do it are, are smaller independent operators. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Maybe not by quantity. It's probably pretty evenly slipped between the majors and private companies, but in terms of the number there's far more small companies like any small business, right? There's far more small businesses in America in the energy patch than there are large corporations. Um, Volume-wise, that's not necessarily right. Foreign countries uh, and large consolidated, uh, uh, you know, U.S. oil companies probably have the majority of production reserves, but definitely not the majority of companies uh, going after those reserves. And currently uh, with that, aforementioned uh, ESG movement. The majors have really been restricted in how much they produce. So the gap has really been filled by private companies over the last two years, maybe maybe as long as four years.
0: Interesting. So when the public pressure or pressure from wherever is saying we need to reduce emissions, whatever it is, we Mm -hmm. need to stop doing what it is that you do then that actually does have an impact on big producers, which leads to an opportunity slash need for smaller independent producers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the only reason that we
1: have enough production to <clears throat> meet our daily needs is that the independent producers kind of came in and filled that void uh, because everyone else has been restricted. Banks can't loan. Uh, uh, large cap companies can't issue new equity. Right? They're forced to operate within cash flow, pay dividends, buy back shares, uh, invest in renewables, and, and cap their carbon output. So the only ones left are the private companies to come in um, and, and fill that void. So it's been a huge opportunity set. I think good and bad. So selfishly, it's amazing, but it's fantastic. Uh, it's created the, probably the single greatest wealth arbitrage, maybe in the history of the country, but definitely in the history of energy in a four year stretch. Uh, for private companies. But the the bad side of it is when you do that, you take from highly regulated, highly transparent processes to less efficiency in small operators and maybe less transparency and probably less environmental stewardship. So not speaking for ourselves because we focus very heavily on it, but, you know, a small company is going to have a lot harder time putting in all those checks and balances and cost savings and transparency that a major has to. So in some sense, you know, while it's a great opportunity set, I, I do sometimes wonder if we're doing a disservice uh,
0: in, in what we've done. That political decisions have unintended consequences, Matthew? No, no. never. <laughs> never. As, as, as you're looking at, at at Europe and Russia and and Germany and winter. What are your thoughts? Uh, I
1: think we get through this winter. Uh, It's a really scary situation. So to put this in context for everyone, there's a realistic situation where people are not just rationed, but run out of energy in an industrialized world, not just rolling blackouts, blackouts, like dark ages style. We don't have enough energy. The lines in Poland to get coal right now are so long where people are actually getting physical coal for their house to actually heat their house for the winter. And they're waiting in lines as if this was the Soviet Union, right? Like there's some amazing things happening in an industrialized world that people just don't comprehend. And I think what's really scary is what we realized from this goes back to that S component. The most socially responsible thing to do from a global perspective is to probably have the best actors producing the most and the worst actors producing the least. Like We want the U.S. producing more natural gas because of its standards, and we want Russia producing less. Right At the end of the day, if there's X amount of supply going to market, we sure as heck don't want Venezuela, Russia, Iran, um, and, and the worst actors in the world to have that power Right. We really want it to be the countries that have. So we want Poland to open up their own natural gas reserves. They've been unable to drill and Frack for the last decade. Well, they have enough reserves to provide for themselves. But because of their policies, they didn't. They relied on Russia. Well, that's really bad social responsibility. Right. It, it's actually, you know, it, we made our bed. Now we got to lie in it. It's pretty sad. And what happens that really scares me is next year. If they can, if we, if Europe makes it through the winter, and has enough supply, the U.S. is going to have a really difficult choice on its hands. And this is really natural gas specific, not so much oil. We, we produce and, and distribute about 20% of our natural gas through LNG globally. Well, natural gas is $70 an MCF in Europe. It's seven here. It's putting in context of cost. Next November, we're going to have to choose to fill our own inventories and if we don't, we'll see $20 in MCF gas. But socially, if we don't, Europe will be without power. So if this goes on for another year, the question becomes, how do we weigh that economic cost? Who's going to burden that? Who's going to shoulder that, right? If the U.S. doesn't have excess capacity and we run through a cold winter, are people going to be okay with rolling blackouts in the U.S. to help Europe? I, I don't think people realize how serious this is and that we're only a year away from absolute calamity. And maybe it happens this winter. You know, La Nina is when El Nino was in effect and you, it's scary. It's scary if you get a cold winter right now in Europe, what happens? So I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not very happy with the global situation we face and it's all self-induced, which is even sadder.
0: Right. It's scary.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We don't see it. We're 3000 miles away. Right. So, Everything's but, fine here. Yeah. The next year when we have $20 MCF gas and your, in your electric bill is seven times higher. What are you gonna do? Like what? what and by the way, seven times higher is nowhere near the 40 times higher they're seeing in Europe. Like just putting it in context. And then just think about what that happens from an, econ- an economic standpoint, the shutdowns, the inability to manufacture logisticals, everything's a nightmare, right? And people don't realize that we're actually facing a similar situation that we seem to have averted here in the U.S. So uh, I'll, I'll use kind of a political habit. Do you remember the Keystone Pipeline, kind of the big conversation for years? Sure. The pipeline. People really know what the Keystone Pipeline is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring heavy crude from Canada down to the US. It's really what it does. Uh and and from a pure environmental perspective, you'd rather have it pipelined than railed. Hmm. Right? Because it's coming down to the refineries. The refineries need it to make diesel, right? You need the heavy crude with the US light sweet crude, combine the two, and then in essence, you get your distillates and your diesels. And it's still coming here, but it's coming through Burlington Northern, right? It's coming through the railroads. It's a lot less environmentally sound than coming through the pipeline, but now we're getting less quantity than we should. And the problem becomes, if you think about the US logistical supply and chain issues, how do we get everything to market? How do we get, we truck it. Everything's coming from diesel. Well, you run through a diesel shortage, and, and you're already at a pricing diesel shortage this summer that was nasty, right? But an actual supply side shortage where there's not enough diesel to get supplies to market, what happens to inflation? Too much money, too few goods. This doesn't become a five-year problem. This becomes a 15-year problem. And it's all because we had to make stupid political decisions based on feel-good moments versus the actual necessities of what we need to run it. And, and the Northeast is seeing this in the same thing in natural gas, where people in the North are going to pay obscene amounts for natural gas next year. Yet, because of the infrastructure in the South, the same amount of supply in the Utica and the Marcellus as there is maybe a lot more than in the Haynesville and the Permian from a gas side, yet the South has unlimited infrastructure. It's built pipelines the North didn't allow it and they can't get product to market. It's just, it's an amazing phenomenon that we've just done a poor job of politicizing everything instead of realizing that it's not political. It's just, there's no political argument here. It's just to do what's right.
0: Sorry, it's kind of a soapbox. Not at all. That's it's it's I think it strikes me that the sooner we can start having these real conversations about what the what life will look like in a pretty short amount of time, the better. Because I can't imagine you just throw a switch and all of a sudden, oh, just we we went back to what we were doing before. Now it's okay. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: In the reality, so here's the big
0: kind of picture that people
1: should get. Intelligent people should also say renewables are essential, right? So you have 8 billion people on this planet and there's going to be 10 billion at some point in time, probably in the next 10 years. And there's not enough, even if you didn't believe in global warming, even if you just thought it was all a hoax, the reality is on the backside of this, there's still people who need energy and you couldn't produce enough fossil fuel energy to handle an eight, a 10 billion people load, especially the standard of living that everyone wants to live, which is our standard, right? No, that's just a, a median standard globally. There's just not enough. To meet the growth of consumption, all the future growth, you need every source of energy, every renewable possible to try to meet that, base, to replace the growth, not even the base load, just to handle the growth of consumption. It's in all of the above scenario, right? And there's not enough land mass to do solar and wind. We know that but there's also not enough fossil fuels to provide for everybody and you need all of the above and and you need it strategically located in areas that have sun and that have wind and that have uh, water for the hydro and you need all of it. And the answer is all of the above. It's not one or the other. And I don't know why we've turned it into this competitive. It has to be one or the other. The answer is no for 10 billion people on this planet. We need every single source of energy cheap and abundant and renewable and efficient and you name it so that all of our standards of living can increase all of our health, everything that we do, right? We need more fertilizer, which means we need more fossil fuels to create more fertilizer. So we have better farms to give us more food. It's all a big circle. Like this isn't, they're not against each other. They're all for each other.
0: Matthew act the voice of reason. Amen. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage with U.S. Energy Petroleum Corporation? U.S. Yeah, Energy so, Development Corporation?
1: Yeah, uh, feel free to, to find us on any you know, LinkedIn, social media, U.S. Energy Development Corporation, or uh, our website, usedc.com. Um, love to, to chat. Uh, if you're an investment professional, which is really what we do, uh, feel free to contact us on the investment side. Uh, we do a lot of education training, continuing education,
0: uh in the uh, direct energy space so feel free to call us love it well if you enjoyed as much as i did show matthew your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas go to usedc.com just search for us energy development corporation and uh, find out if there's an opportunity to work together thanks again matt and until next time remember do your part by doing your best